Good morning, everybody. Why don't you make your way back to your seat? Yes, Carrie, congratulations on being a man. Yeah, the reason we gave Carrie uh, the Sword of Courage, in case you didn't know, we give a Sword of Courage each month when we have our men's ministry, and we think Carrie has modeled both good leadership as a worship leader, and he's also been extremely humble and open when he's failed, and we think that those are two marks of manhood, so way to go, Carrie. For those of you that uh, uh, don't know, I had shoulder surgery about 10 days ago, and the reason I am not wearing my sling right now is because my physical therapist wife is at work, which means I can take it off. So um, let's keep that between us, though, okay? Like, nobody text her right now. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, please. And... Uh, Big good news, really important announcement, uh, I am officially off of Percocet. So, um, so what that really means is I'm responsible for everything that I have to say this morning, right? All right, so uh, this morning we are in this series called Creed, What uh, Christians Believe. And we are in week four. We've taken three weeks so far. We have talked about the Trinity, the beauty of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We have talked about the Word of God being inspired and how it's reliable and how we can trust it. Today we're going to talk about a huge topic, creation versus evolution. And so I've, uh, some of us are really scientific, and we're like, yes! Others of us are like, uh, science. Well, for you all, we have videos. So I want to start this morning's talk with a video of the Japanese pufferfish. Unfortunately, this small Japanese pufferfish is dull, almost to the point of invisibility. But to compensate, he is probably nature's greatest artist. To grab a female's attention, he creates something that almost defies belief. His only tools are his fins. In his head, a plan of mathematical perfection. He plows the sand, breaking it up into the finest of particles. These shells aren't just rubbish to be removed. He uses them to decorate the ridges of his construction. He can't rest for more than a moment, but must work 24 hours a day for a week, or the current will destroy his creation.
A final tidy up, and his masterpiece is complete. does an animal construct something as complex and perfect as this. If this doesn't get him noticed, nothing will. Guys, I just got to ask us men, like, how are you feeling right now? I just have this overwhelming need to apologize to all women everywhere on behalf of the male species. You know, like, when I look at that and I think of my own pursuit of my wife before marriage, it's like, uh, I'm really sorry. That's amazing, though, isn't it? So is that the result? Is the Japanese pufferfish the result of random mistakes, or is it the result of the creative designer God? That's what we're going to talk about here today. Uh, I want to first lay a foundation by just sharing with us how to think about this. How do we even begin to think about this debate? The first thing I want to say is this. There's no real contradiction between faith and true science. There is no contradiction. We've been led to believe, especially in our day, because there are some very strong evolutionist voices to think that you cannot be a person of faith who believes in the scripture and also believes in science. There have been some very polarizing books that have been written, like The God Delusion, The End of Faith, God the Failed Hypothesis, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Richard Dawkins would most definitely say, you cannot have faith and have science. I prefer to listen to a wiser voice, a less polarizing voice, that of Albert Einstein. Einstein said a legitimate conflict between science and religion cannot exist. exist. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. So when I look at the debate and I see all these polarizing arguments, it's kind of like kids on a playground. You're stupid. Well, you're stupid. Infinity final. It's like no one's really listening to one another at all. And I just want to say that I think that there's brilliant people on both sides. I think that there's persuasive evidence on both sides. I'm a staunchly committed creationist, but I respect people that don't have the faith that I have. If you're here this morning and you're an evolutionist, you're here as our guest. I hope I don't offend you. Our goal is to share what we believe truth is in a humble matter. But I agree with Einstein. I think you can hold on to both. 
Here's the second thing I want us all to learn here this morning. If the Bible is inspired, then both scripture and true science will tell the same story. They will tell the same story. The point is God wrote two books. God wrote one book, the scriptures. This is what we talked about last week, that the Bible is equally the word of man and it is the word of God. And so it's authoritative. We can trust it. It's reliable. God wrote a book. That's called special revelation. God revealed himself in a very special way through the scriptures so that through faith we can read the gospels and know what God is like as we look at the life of Jesus. Special revelation. But there's also general revelation. General revelation is what you and I walk under every day. It's creation. It's nature. Every single fact of the universe reveals God, even a single blade of grass. So there's two books that God wrote, special revelation and general revelation, and the two should align. And I do believe that they do. Third thing I want you to hear. Most of us, we haven't thought through what we believe. We just haven't. We haven't thought through what we believe. We haven't thought through why we believe it. We haven't thought through the implications of what we believe. Christians today are guilty of often being illiterate of their faith and following culture instead of letting Jesus lead them to lead culture. Both the evolutionist and the creationist often has not th thought through the implications of what they say they believe. That was true of me, too. I went to college about a year after I became a Christian and was exposed to evolution. Faith seemed to be confronted by science. And so I read and I read and I read and I read and I read. Both Jim and I and Steve as well, we are just avid readers, especially in this area. I read Evolution, A Theory in Crisis by Michael Denton, Darwin on Trial by Philip Johnson, by the way, I lent that book to somebody and I didn't get it back. Does anyone, no one, no one has that? Okay. I forgot who I lent it to. I read The Devil's Delusion by David Berlinski. Not a Christian, but a man that believes that where science has gone is wrong. Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe, a former evolutionist. And I didn't just read creationist perspectives. I read Sam Harris, The End of Faith. I read God is Not Great by the late Christopher Hitchens. Signature in the Cell by Stephen Meyer. The Fingerprints of God by Hugh Ross. And about 20 other books because I am a geek. Here's what I want you to know about evolution. And this is from the words of an evolutionist. If evolution is true, there is no purpose to life. There is no absolute truth. There is no objective morality. There is no life after death. There is no free will, and there is no such thing as love. I don't have time to explain that this morning, but love is merely the response of our chemicals. There is no spirit nor will giving ourselves to another person in, in self-sacrifice. So the way Michael Denton put it is that Darwin broke our link with God and set us adrift in the cosmos with no purpose. Then on the other hand, if creation is true, 
If what I'm about to share with you is actually true, then we come face to face with what we talked about last week, which is the inspired word of God, speaking authoritatively thousands of years before science came along. So what does the Bible actually teach? Okay, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word for beginning is re-sheath. Let's be real careful with the <laughs> pronunciation. I spelled it out for you. Re-sheath is beginning. One thing I want you to see about Genesis 1.1, it does not come with a time stamp. It does not say that the universe is young nor old. There is no time that is revealed by Scripture. But until Einstein came along, science believed that the universe was eternal, that it had always been there. It just was. So I want you to imagine a conversation between Moses, the author of Genesis, and Einstein, the discoverer of the theory of general and special relativity. Now, I know that the two men were separated by about 3,000 years, but let's just imagine. Einstein speaks first. Moses, Moses, I hear you have some theory about the creation of the world with a beginning and a beginner. Moses, yes, I believe you, when you come along, are going to be wrong in saying that the universe is eternal. God, through his inspired word through me, says that there was a beginner. Einstein laughs, you people of faith. <laughs> Moses then says, Einstein, just go back. Keep working on your theory. You're going to catch up with me soon. Einstein goes back, discovers the theories of relativity, and science changes its mind and comes back around to what the book of Genesis teaches. Robert Jastrow put it this way, and this man is an agnostic uh, astrophysicist, if I remember. Most remarkable of, of all, astronomers have found proof that the universe sprang into existence abruptly in a sudden moment of creation as the Bible said it did. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's kind of crazy. Back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. The word created there, the Hebrew word is bara, which means created out of nothing. Created out of nothing. Maybe some of you have heard this phrase, creation ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. It's interesting how close science has come to this perspective. Science has said it's not like there were piles of matter sitting around when the Big Bang happened. Matter was packed into this very, 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 very small place called the singularity. And Moses leans over and says, actually, it's a little smaller. There's nothing there. Very close in those two perspectives. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I just want you all to see that creation is the work of the triune God, a trinity, a trinity. This mentions both the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is also referenced in the New Testament as being the creator 
of the universe. But the Hebrew word here that we'll find throughout the rest of Genesis 1 and 2 is asa, which means to fashion. So first God, bara, created out of nothing, and then he took what he had created, a formless earth that was not ready for humans, and he asad, he shaped it, fashioned it into a place where we could live. Now for me, for me, the word asa rules out evolution by natural processes. For me, because it describes God as being the one personally fashioning. That's why I believe the Japanese pufferfish is the way it is, because it's been fashioned by a beautiful and holy God. I will disclaim, however, that there are Christians that believe in evolution. Francis Collins, who is the brilliant leader of the Human Genome Project, is one such man that believes in God and in Jesus, but also in evolution. I don't believe he arrived at that through scripture, and I start with scripture and stick with scripture. But I want to be honest in saying that some people go that route. So what we're left with are organisms that bear the stamp of the creator. So this morning, I want to share with you a second video about the bombardier beetle. The bombardier beetle is one of nature's most improbable creatures. For some, it throws a monkey wrench into the whole idea of evolution. This beetle is a walking powder keg. That cloud you see is the result of a lightning-fast chemical reaction inside his body. Attacked, the beetle sets off the explosion, releasing a boiling hot, stinging poison that sends his enemies running. He can even aim it. This potent mixture inside the beetle is made up of three main ingredients. Mix the first two of them together and nothing happens, but throw in the third and boom. So the beetle has a trick. He keeps these ingredients separate inside his body. From an evolutionary standpoint, that's what's interesting. In fact, people have been scratching their heads over this for decades. How did this complex system evolve over time? So uh, I wish that had gone a little bit further into the science of it. The bombardier beetle actually has two compartments, these two tanks that are connected by a, a pipe running in between them. It has a noxious gas in each of those two compartments. The two gases meet in the middle in the pipe and then an inhibitor is dropped into it to keep it from exploding. Then the new gas moves down the tailpipe and right before it is released, an anti-inhibitor is added which knocks out the inhibitor which allows the explosion to happen just at the right time. And evolutionists, I do not believe, have any chance at explaining that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So there was nothing, and then by the word of God, there was light. An explosion 
of light and heat. Scientists call this the Big Bang. I remember when I heard about the Big Bang at first, I thought it was evidence against God. And it took me some time to realize, no, it's actually evidence for God. That's what Genesis teaches. We just call it Big God, not Big Bang. The real mind-blowing question is, if the Big Bang made the universe, what made the Big Bang? Kai Nielsen, who is an atheist, put it this way. If, I, if we heard a bang and we asked, what made that bang? And I said, nothing. Nothing made the bang. You would not accept it. No one would accept it. Christianity teaches a beginning. That's what science has stumbled upon after many thousands of years. Christianity teaches a beginner that made the beginning, which follows by logic and is necessary in my mind. Christianity teaches the beginning of the universe through light, which is the Big Bang. And Christianity teaches creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, which is what science is at too. Arno Penzias, who is the, the discoverer of cosmic background radiation and a Nobel uh, Prize winner, said this, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the first five books of Moses, first five books of the Bible, the Psalms and the Bible as a whole. That's a radical statement from an astrophysicist about scripture and faith and evidence. Robert Jastrow comes along again, one of my favorite people, and he says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. I hope you follow the implication of what he's saying. So let's talk about the six days of creation. There are five perspectives that I want to share with you rather briefly. Uh, this will in no way be exhaustive. The first is historic creationism. Historic creationism says in Genesis 1-1, God created the universe, and there's no time stamp on that. It could be young. It could be old. The Bible just doesn't teach that. It is followed by six literal 24-hour periods of time. What that gives us is the possibility of a very old universe and yet a literal six days. That's the first perspective. The second perspective is called young earth view. The young earth view is just the view that the earth is young. And young earth people believe this because of Usher. Archbishop Usher, who taught that the beginning of the universe happened in 4004 BC. And so the young earth view rejects what science says about an old universe and holds to six literal 24-hour periods. The third perspective is the old earth view. This says not only in accordance with Genesis 1-1 that the earth might be, that the universe might be infinitely old, but it takes the literal six 24-hour periods of time and says actually that might not be literal. You see, the Hebrew word there for day is the word yaum. And yaum might mean a 24-hour period of time, and yaum might mean a very long era, like if I was to say back in my day. 
And so this position posits a very old universe and a non-literal understanding. And just so you know, Augustine said in 391, this is like a long time ago, and Augustine said no Christian should bind themselves to a literalist interpretation of Genesis. Next perspective is the literary view. The literary view is basically saying that Moses was not being scientific here. He was being poetic. He was using a literary device, and all that is really intended in what Moses wrote in Genesis is simply saying, listen, y'all, God created it all. That's all that the literary view intends to express. Finally, theistic evolution, which is uh, I've already referred to, these are Christians that say, obviously, God had to bring this all about. I believe in evolution, but I believe God was behind it. And I've already mentioned Francis Collins on one person who holds that. What do I believe? That's the question. I believe in an old earth. I believe that special revelation and general revelation, like I have already shared, align perfectly. I believe that the science that says the universe is very old is legit. I believe in an old earth. I believe also in a young humanity. Both Christians and non-Christians are asserting that humanity, in contrast to all other organisms, have been around for a relatively short period of time. I don't know if you all have been paying attention to this, but there's a lot of debate here over the last two years on whether or not there, we can trace back our genes back to one pair of humans, an Adam and Eve. And some scientists say absolutely not, and some scientists say absolutely yes. So it's actually a big debate going on. So I believe in an old earth, a young humanity, and that everything appears designed. Even evolutionists, when they describe these organisms, use the language of design. We can't help it. Everything looks designed because I think everything's designed. Let's go back to Darwin. When Darwin came around and he wrote On the Origin of Species, um, this was a long time ago, 1891, am I getting that right? Um, science at this point did not have the electron microscope where we could look inside a cell. The cell was called the simple cell. It was called the simple cell because we thought it was like jello with a wall around it. We had no idea how complex the cell actually was. Well, actually, the cell is more complicated than any machine built by man. The living cell is absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. There's just nothing that is that complicated. So, my final video here this morning is to share with us a little bit about what goes on inside the cell. And thought a cell was, say, a mud hut. What do we now know that a cell is? More complicated than uh, a Saturn V. So what is in a cell as far as we know now? A world that Darwin never could have imagined. I needed someone who could give me a glimpse into this world. So we went to molecular biologist Doug Axe. Think of a cell as being a nano factory, a factory where on a very small scale, 
Digital instructions are being used to make the components of the factory. Here we have the famous DNA double helix. You can see the two helical strands that are intertwined and wind around each other on the outside of the molecule. This is the material that stores all of our genetic information. In higher life forms, this will be the equivalent of something like a gigabyte of information stored in the molecules that form the individual chromosomes, all packed within the nucleus, which is a tiny fraction of the entire cell size. So what does DNA do? Well, the information in DNA ends up providing the information for sequencing the amino acids to make protein. We have information in a one-dimensional form that provides the information for a three-dimensional form. I'm finally just beginning to grasp the complexity of the cell. Are there systems within the cell that go well beyond Darwinian evolution? Some type of cellular technology that drives adaptation, replication, quality control, and repair? What if these new mechanisms have massive design implications? Well, I say, so be it. The cell really thought... By the way, the uh, Ben Stein, the creator of that movie expelled I do not believe is a Christian also and yet he sees the difficulties of evolution can I tell you guys how incredibly great and awesome you are am I allowed to say that I want you to think about DNA for a minute here Carl Sagan again an evolutionist gave an explanation of how much information is in every single cell of your body imagine going to the world's largest library one that holds 10 million books. And imagine opening up one book and reading every single letter in every single sentence on every single page in that book, going on to book two, three, and all 10 million. The information that you would have read in 10 million books is the amount of information in every single cell in your body in DNA. Sir Fred Hoyle, astrophysicist, said the idea that this could happen by random chance is nonsense of the highest order. I want to summarize and contrast divine creation and macroevolution just to explain the difference here. Microevolution is the fact that species can have minor changes within themselves. Birds can develop 
longer beaks. Human beings that used to be shorter are now taller. You can tell I'm not very evolved, I guess. <laughs> Macroevolution is the change from one species into an entirely new species. And that is where creationists say we do not believe that that is true. So here's my contrast. Macroevolution teaches nothing made everything. Creation teaches a beginner, an all-wise holy God, designing every single being and organism and thing in the universe. Macroevolution teaches that chaos made order. The Big Bang is an explosion a random, purposeless explosion. Fred Hoyle responded to this thought by saying, the probability of life arising on earth by purely natural means without special divine aid is less than the probability that a flight-worthy Boeing 747 should be assembled by a hurricane roaring through a junkyard. It just doesn't make sense. Creation teaches infinite intelligence, created order and design, and that's what we observe in the universe. We observe order and design. Macroevolution teaches that impersonal matter, impersonal matter made personal humanity. We have feelings. We have a will. We believe in love. We believe in these things, but if evolution is true, then matter without will, without feelings, and without love designed us. Stephen Hawking said it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Now, to be fair, Hawking certainly did not believe in God. He was adamantly against belief in God. But this quote from him is very telling. He's looking at the evidence about us being made the way we are made. Creation teaches that a personal, relational, loving God made us beings like him. Now, in your notes, just so you know, uh, on our app... Uh, H2O Church Orlando. You can go to the App Store and get our app. I've got a ton of notes, and I've written down seven questions that I would humbly ask. I would humbly ask an evolutionist to consider. I'm not going to go over that this morning. I want you to know that that is there in your notes. Why does this topic matter to me? Why does this matter? To, why does this topic matter to me? First and foremost is since I met Jesus at age 17, nothing matters to me more than a personal salvation, a person coming to know Jesus Christ and being cleansed and forgiven and renewed. I had a buddy of mine when I was uh, at Ball State in Indiana. The guy's name was Jeff, and Jeff started coming around to our church, and we would have all these discussions, and Jeff was an evolutionist, and we would argue. I would argue with him about evolution. Week after week, we'd get together, and we'd just argue and debate, and didn't get anywhere. 
One day, Jeff called me, and I'm not making this up. Jeff called me, and he said, John, can you come over to my house right now? And I said, sure, but why? And he said, I need to be saved right now. Somehow, through his reading of the Scripture, he had come to believe that forget the evolution debate. That's not the point. The point is I need Jesus And in my youth, I foolishly made evolution a bigger deal than it needed to be. That's my first concern. My second concern is that each of us here would have an intellectual faith. Guys, it's not enough for us to say, well, you just got to believe. Just a matter of faith. It's like, shut up. We have got to tell the world that is skeptical that there's actually hardcore persuasive evidence. I'm not going to argue with you, but I will present the evidence and the reason for the hope that I have. And I want to challenge all of us to roll up our sleeves and do some hard work, read through the notes on the app, become clear on why creation is a trustworthy thing to believe in. My third concern has to do with hope. Hope. I just want to remind everybody here that if evolution is true, there's no purpose to life, there's no absolute truth, there's no objective morality, no life after death, no free will, and no such thing as love. Bertrand Russell said that only within the scaffolding of these truths, of there being no purpose, there being no love, only within the scaffolding of those truths, only on that firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. And what he's really saying there is your life is a house And evolution is true, so you might as well face the facts and learn that there is no such thing as love. There's no purpose to life, and just get on with it and build your life on the foundation of science. Well, there's another person who talked about life being like a house. Jesus said, build your life on my words. And for me, when I met Jesus... It was like a door opened up, and I realized that God had spoken through special revelation through his word. God had spoken through general revelation through science that the two lined up, and we have hope and purpose and love and all of these things that make life worth living. If only we could trust that what God has said is true. We live in a real world that I believe God really designed. And into the real world, God really sent his son in order to save us from our very real sin by dying on a really, on a real cross. I hope this has been helpful for you. This is not an exhaustive talk on this topic So in our life groups, if you've not been to a life group, I encourage you to check one out. If you want to discuss any of this further with me, perhaps through text, very, very slow response from me uh, with my one hand, 
then you can write whatever you want on the blue card, and I will do my best to respond to you. Can we stand as we move into worship? Great God, I thank you that you reveal yourself through stars, through bombardier beetles, through Japanese puffer fish, and through every single fact of this universe. You've left your fingerprints. You've left a signature, your signature in the cell. You've left all the evidence we need through the cross of Christ. And we thank you that because of that, every human being matters. Every person, no matter what struggle or dysfunction or weakness, matters. And we matter. And love matters. And what we do with our lives matter. So we turn our hearts to you, O oh great God, in an act of gratitude and worship to just say thank you. We come now to worship in the holy name of Jesus.